thanks to all of you for coming out on this Friday evening to think about the Reformation. Uh, I've been looking forward to this, and it's a, a treat to see folks from New City as well as folks from other communities in the area. Uh, my talk is titled, The Creature of the Word, and I want to begin a, a bit further back, uh, thinking about the way in which you came in here tonight. You entered in, perhaps some of you like me, from a suburb further out, and you traveled in, and as you came into the city center, you passed a number of things. Bars are kicking up. Uh, there are high-rises, uh, office buildings with folks emptying out, heading home or going out for the evening. Uh, there's some foot traffic, especially over to the west here, just a block. Uh, and so you've got folks leaving, folks coming. You've got a few churches right here in the hub of the city center. But one thing that you will have not passed that would be a, a rather notable difference to the lives of virtually everybody we're going to talk about this evening, folks from the 16th century, would be that you have not passed a massive cemetery at the middle of the town. If you think about the the life of a Martin Luther or an Ulrich Zwingli, the life of a Martin Bucer or a John Calvin, the life of an ordinary European 16th century man, woman, or child, the presence of the dead would be a very obvious reality. As they came into a, a church such as this own, uh, a, a cathedral, you would find right there by the entrance, perhaps the, the largest space actually would be given to the graveyard. The presence of the dead was a very uh, concrete and material and obvious thing, something that you can't avoid. And if we're honest, I think we'd have to acknowledge that, that we live in a day and an age that's very much unlike that. We have, in all sorts of ways, removed the dead. We, of course, removed them from the city center so that they're, by and large, buried off in cemeteries out on uh, sort of lush land far from our daily paths. But we also remove the dead from the way in which we go about our lives, don't we? Uh, As parents and grandparents are aging and ailing, at a certain point you have that conversation about moving them out sending them off, handing them over. And we institutionalize and medicalize and professionalize the care of the dying. And we move off and out the presence of those who make us think of death. We live in a culture where where the dead and death are pretty distant. And in lots of ways, that, that fits in with the fact that we live in a culture that's obsessed with the present, don't we? We are fascinated with the momentary and the immediate with the glitz and the bling of today and what's going on and what's trending. And so that's why it's so strange and happy to me that you're here, because we're going to talk about dead people. And in talking about dead people, we're going to try and suggest that you get an insight into a living God and that you can really only capture some of the beauty of that living God by learning of the ways that he has blessed and journeyed with and provided for Men and women who died a long time ago in places far different from this place, but who trusted in the same gospel, who ministered the same word, and who sought to praise this same God. And so, remembering the words from Hebrews 13, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and I trust forever, I think it's worthwhile to spend some time on a Friday night when you're thinking about what's current 
and what's new to look back and to glance over your shoulder and to consider what God has been doing and ways in which God has blessed his people, his saints, his church in years past. And so we want to consider tonight the Reformation of the 16th century. And I'm going to talk in particular about one facet of that remarkable event where the church was reformed, the role and significance, the power of the word of God. But it's worth noting as as we do that, that the Reformation is something that's much debated. In fact, uh, most of you perhaps will have caught in the advertisements for this event that we're doing this this year in 2017 because we mark a 500th anniversary of a significant event. We're in 1517 on October 31st. A monk and professor in Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther, went and posted 95 theses. This is what professors do. Uh, we spout off, and Luther spouted off, and he offered thoughts, and he tacked them to the door in the town square, and he actually failed. He was calling for a debate. He wanted someone to show up and go at it with him, and no one came, and there was no such disputation, but he succeeded in ways that go far beyond anything I suspect he could have ever imagined, and Luther had some wild dreams, actually, Uh, but I, I, I doubt he could have possibly dreamt the impact of those theses and the way in which they prompted people to think about God's word and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But a number of people are marking this year, not looking back with a posture of celebration and gratitude, but skepticism and lament. Of course, there are things to lament in looking at any event from the history. You and I know that. We've all got that uncle And if we're honest, we're a lot like that uncle. Someone you're embarrassed by, and it's somewhat embarrassing because you know you got a couple of the traits that led to whatever embarrassing things they've done that your parents just don't talk about. And that's true in church history, too. Folks like Luther and Calvin, they have warts and they have skeletons. And so it's always appropriate to acknowledge, as the Bible does, that the saints are not perfect, but they're recipients of grace and forgiveness like you and I. But... There are some approaches of lament to the Reformation that I want to suggest are, are not terribly helpful and that are very common. A number of historians nowadays would suggest that the Reformation was terribly problematic and hurtful to the church, perhaps because it led to and was really about the development of what we'd call modern individualism, that Luther and others were really upset and frustrated by the idea of authority. Yeah, the Pope, the councils, the tradition of the church, but ultimately underneath it, virtually any authority, political, religious, or otherwise. And that out of this, of course, comes the kind of cynical atmosphere that you and I live in every day, where you can see the rants and the frustrations, where in our modern culture we are so quick to spout off, so inclined to Monday morning quarterback, and so suspicious of anybody in power, whether they deserve it or not. Other folks would suggest that it's not so much individualism as what they could call secularism, that Luther and the other reformers were really interested in opening up space that would be outside the umbrella of the church's authority and of religious concern. 
And so this is the creation of the secular city, a space that's sort of untouched by biblical and Christian teaching. Uh, and that this is the beginning of sort of pluralism and of kind of a, a godless vacuum and void at the heart of our community life. And I would suggest that this, this is problematic. This is somehow going to suggest that Christianity is about what you do on Sunday and in church in rooms like this, but not what you do when you're in the office building, not what you do when you're going about the, the grind of work Monday to Friday, not what you do when you're at home with your family or hanging out with friends in your neighborhood. And so some would say that Luther basically shrinks Christianity by making it about our religious relationship to God and nothing else. And others would add to this that that, that shrinking involves a, a smaller view of the world, that the medieval person, the, the early modern person of the early 16th century would have a very vivid sense of the world. I, I just read a lecture from a Roman Catholic professor in Texas yesterday uh, where he was particularly concerned because Luther led people to have a less vivid sense of the spiritual realm and to focus simply on what's in front of them. Luther was very excited about political things, and he was very concerned about the goodness of things like beer, good German beer, and he led people away from thinking about the importance of the saints in heaven or the angels in the angelic world. As I read that, I thought it was rather strange because Luther, unlike perhaps you and I, would spend most nights going to sleep, crying out, believing that a fallen angel is oppressing him in his room. He's sort of like that person. You don't want the seat next to him on the airplane. You don't want the room next to Luther's room in the monastery because he's yelling at the devil all night to leave him alone and to, to, to be gone. But some would suggest that he basically has led us to have this, this very earthly-minded notion of the world. I want to suggest that, you know, out of the Reformation come a lot of things. And individualism is an issue. Secularism is an issue. Folks who have a naturalistic view of the world and, and aren't alert to the supernatural uh, and the spiritual, that's an issue. We struggle with all of these things. But none of those is at the heart of the Reformation. At the heart of the Reformation is really a, a deep and profound conviction about who God is and how that changes who we think we are. There was a 19th century historian named Philip Schaff, and he used two terms to describe what was going on in the, the 16th century Reformation. He said, as you talk about Luther and Zwingli and the other reformers, you can really identify a lot of concerns. I mean, they cared about how people prayed, what you did with your money, how the church was governed and run, uh, what was done with the Bible or not done with the Bible, and what was believed and confessed. But underneath all of that, they said there were really two things. We could call them two principles. And there was a, a material principle, sort of the presenting issue. How are you right with God? How can you know that you have peace with God? How can you know that you are a child of God and that God names you as his own and will bless you eternally in Christ? And so Luther spoke of being justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ and being justified on his merits, not our own. That's the material, sort of substantive presenting issue. But Schaff said there's a second principle that was related to that. And he called it a formal principle. He said, the formal principle, the, 
sort of the principle that governed how all the debates played out in the 16th century Reformation was the principle of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is the final authority for faith and practice. That everything we believe and everything we do has to be normed and rooted in God's holy word or else it must go or be reformed. Not that it's the only authority, not that we don't look to other resources, leaders, and the like, but that every resource or leader has to be pointing us to and building upon God's word, not supplementing it, not correcting it, not adding to it, not behaving as if they're equal to it. And so Schaff speaks of this material principle and of this formal principle. But he goes on to say, he said, the catch is the two are, are not disconnected. He said, if, you're, if you find yourself transfixed and really interested in the idea of justification by faith alone, but you don't realize that Luther and the other reformers care about the God who teaches you through his word, you will very quickly find yourself falling into an inwardism and what he called a, a sheer subjectivism. He meant by that that basically you would start to treat the Jesus who justifies you as a sort of psychological mantra. Not a person, not someone who really can engage you, guide you, direct you, correct you, but rather some sort of idea in your head, an inward subjective notion that you could run to as sort of a balm for your weary conscience. So he said you can't hold on to the material principle of believing you're justified by Christ if you don't also listen to Christ and attend to that formal principle of being instructed by his word. But he said it goes the other way. He said if you, if you hold on to the Bible alone and if you hold on to the idea that God speaks uniquely and specially and powerfully here, but you don't realize that at the center of the Bible is this word that God wants to relate to you by grace and that you're saved on the basis of what Jesus has done, then it becomes all about this bookishness. It becomes this mantra of being focused upon uh, sort of a handbook of behavior and of protocols. It becomes very externalistic in all sorts of bad ways. And I suspect just as much as we know people who fall prey to subjectivism, we also can identify that tendency to fall into an externalism and some sort of outward legalism. And so Schaff said, you've, you've got to realize that the God who gives you the Bible and teaches you wants to direct you to the center and heart of it. That he gives you the Bible to cut away your self-trust and self-righteousness and to teach you self-forgetfulness by finding yourself in Jesus Christ, renamed in his gospel. Um, at the same time as, as Schaff was looking back at the Reformation and speaking of these two principles and saying they're intertwined, there's another guy. Schaff had come over from Europe to the U.S. There was a Dutch professor of theology named Herman Bovink. And Bovink was at the same time, just over a century ago, writing about the Reformation and its influence and its heritage. And like Schaff, he observed, it affected everything. I mean, it affected the German language. Literally, the grammar of the German language was affected by Martin Luther and his translation of the Bible. It affected family life. 
It affected sort of the size of families that people would be encouraged to go and and be rather prolific, as it were. It affected economies and the way in which business was run. It affected politics and uh, the the shape of the state and the way in which their life together ran. And, of course, it affected all sorts of religious issues. And Bavink notes that while there are many things that were reformed in our belief, what we confess as Christians... And while there were many things that were reformed as far as how we practice and behave as Christians, he said there was a root principle underneath all of it. And and he basically said the root principle of being reformed in this classic sense is believing in what he called the absolute sovereignty of God. Now, sovereignty is a funky word. We don't use the word sovereign. It's, It's an exotic word. It simply means the lordship, the reign, the rule, the authority of God. And not just authority in the sense of being someone who gets to call a shot, like the boss is authoritative. You'll also know, more likely than, I say this, my boss is in the first row, but the boss is also inept at times, right? So the boss gets the final shot, but they may be wrong. My kids know this. I get to say when we're going to bed, but they know that dad makes mistakes from time to time, right? Uh, they're, they're aware that I'm not all wise. When Bavink speaks of sovereignty and God's absolute sovereignty, he doesn't just mean that God is sort of the ultimate arbiter, but that God is the all-sufficient one who doesn't need anything, who has everything. He speaks of it, how this is a, a word to sum up everything that's true and good and beautiful about God, that he's holy, that he's loving, that he's righteous, that he's wise, that he's eternal, that he's unchanging. Uh, All the many attributes of God are are summed up so that you could almost say that that to speak of his absolute sovereignty, Bavink is saying, is is to speak of his godishness or godlikeness, that he is holy and he's different and distinct from us. And Bavink says, underneath every other result of the Reformation, the root principle of it was this absolute sovereignty of God, believing that God is perfect without any need or lack, Believing that God is loving, gracious, eager to share. This notion that God is holy, different from those who you and I know to be in power and to use it to exploit their way ahead. That God is righteous, that his word stands, that he doesn't uh, sort of forget or falter to follow through on what he's promised. All of this makes up his, his sovereignty and his lordship. And, and that reshapes everything else. And I want to reflect on that idea with you this this evening for just a few short minutes. How does believing in the perfect triune God lead us to certain beliefs about the word of God? And I actually want to not start with Martin Luther, but with a much forgotten text from just a few years after 1517. In the year 1528, A bunch of folks who you will have never heard of got together and having been influenced by Luther and other early reformers like Ulrich Zwingli, uh, they sought to confess their faith and to confess what they had learned in the, the previous few years about what God's word really said and what God's word really meant. And so they put together a statement. And we, we have it today. It's referred to as the Ten Theses of Bern, from the city of Bern. And I just want to reflect on the first thesis with you, this first statement. 
I think this is my favorite line from the entire 16th century. And I hang out in the 16th century fairly regularly. Uh, Their first statement was this. The Holy Christian Church, whose only head is Jesus Christ, is born of the word of God, abides in the same, and does not listen to the voice of a stranger. Let me just say that one more time in case you're, you're jotting on your phone. The Holy Christian Church, whose only head is Jesus Christ, is born of the word of God, abides in the same, and does not listen to the voice of a stranger. There, there are four statements there. And I just want to very briefly reflect on each of them and what they say about broader reformational teaching and its, its impact on our lives and on the, the church's witness. The first statement is one you could actually run past. The holy Christian church whose only head is Jesus Christ is. And before you get to the main verb, you've actually got this statement that Jesus Christ is our only head. Now, uh, the word head, of course, it's, it's a metaphor. It's an image. It's, it's reflecting on the idea of a body that has a head directing it. And it was a very common image in the 16th century. It was a way in which cities would speak of political, moral direction by those in authority. It was a way in which nation states would reflect on the princes or the king, depending on the particular territory and the way in which they governed affairs. And it was a way in which churches spoke of how the body of Christ was directed by those who held particular offices. Now, of course, it's it's worth noting the folks who put together this sentence and said Jesus Christ is the only head of the church, they were office holders. These were leaders in the church. They weren't somehow going around uh, maligning all human authority. They weren't revolutionaries burning the house down. But they were pointing out that over and above themselves and every other human authority in the world or in the church, Jesus Christ is the only head. It's it's very similar to what we find in the 13th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews, a text that Luther especially would go to regularly. Uh, In Hebrews 13, there's a couple statements about leaders. In verse 7, remember your leaders, those who taught you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life. In other words, did it end well? And imitate their faith. So inasmuch as you realize that they have taught you the word and they've lived well, you watch. And you don't follow everything, but you catch the cases where you see they display faith. And you live out a life of faith that that learns from what they've displayed to you. And then a few verses later in in Hebrews 13, 17, uh, the author goes on and he talks about how you're to be cognizant or respectful. Be alert to the fact that you've got leaders and you're to treat them in a submissive posture. So it commends human leaders. But it goes on at the very end of Hebrews 13 in a famous benediction or blessing at the end of the letter. Some of you will know it. Um, It's one that is often recited in worship services as as we depart to go in, in witness and service into the world where Jesus is named as the great shepherd of the sheep, the great pastor of the sheep. There are leaders, there are those who teach you the word, who uh, live before you as an example, but they are not the great pastor of the flock. Jesus alone is the great pastor of the flock. It's an image that 
pops up in 1 Peter 2 as well. And that's what they were saying first and foremost, that Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. It's the first statement of every Reformed book on the doctrine of the church and how we run the church, how the church is governed. Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. And it's crucial to catch, it is not a statement that sort of mimics a plaque about where a building came from. It is not a history statement like Jesus founded or started the church. It's a present tense statement that Jesus Christ is presently the Lord of the church. He is alive and active. He is risen from the dead, not to take a a vacation or sabbatical, not to pass the baton or see how you fare in keeping it up, but rather he continues to rule and to reign as our prophet, priest, and king. And so the idea of the exalted ministry of the risen Christ is absolutely crucial to understanding the Reformation, that he is the, the only head of the church. He is the ultimate Lord of the church. But it goes on. And second, it says that the Holy Christian Church, whose only head is Jesus Christ, is born of the Word of God. Is born of the Word of God. And, and that's a pretty backhanded statement, actually. You don't realize quite what's being said about you, but this is a great gift. It's, it's sort of like someone says, you know what? I went out and bought you a really expensive gift. And you say, oh, that's very thoughtful. That's kind. And they say, I bought you the most expensive and well-regarded diet program out there. And you say, okay, <laughs> what do you think of me, right? It's, it's a backhanded blessing. That we are born of the word of God means what? You're dead. You are deceased. You and I are in need of birth just as much as you needed mom to push you out into this world so you need the word of God to bring you to life. And so the, the thesis is going on to say that, that we are all, each of us, just as much in need of a spiritual birth as we have found our existence only by a natural or physical birth. And the agent of that birth is always and everywhere the word of God. The, the scriptures, the writings of the prophets and the apostles, those who are ambassadors sent out to declare Christ, to attest him before he's come and to speak of him and announce him now that he has appeared. It is that word of God that brings about spiritual rebirth. And perhaps the, the most cited text in all Protestant churches in the 16th century was that of Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, where we we hear the apostle say that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And it's important to note that, that when he says that, he doesn't just say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. But he's not ashamed of the words about Jesus. The gospel is the announcement of Jesus the proclamation of Jesus. It quite literally means good news. He is not ashamed of the word that has gone out. And he'll come back to this in chapter 10, midway through that chapter, when he speaks of how people won't be saved unless they believe, and they won't believe unless they hear, and they won't hear unless someone proclaims. And so at the heart of the Reformation is this insistence that the word of God really is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, as we hear in 
in Hebrews 3 and 4, verses 12 and 13 especially. But it's, it's not just that the Word of God starts the Christian life or that the Holy Christian Church is birthed and begun by God's Word and, and now we kind of find our bearings and, and like a child that you, you raise up and then hope to send on their way that they would be self-sufficient, we find our own way. But third, it goes on to say, the Holy Christian Church, whose only head is Jesus Christ and is born of the Word of God, abides in the same. And this is where every battle of the Reformation began. Abiding in the Word of God. No one was challenging the notion that the Word of God played a key role, that the Scriptures were significant. Every battle, every debate, every wrestling with truth, every seeking to be faithful and wise and loving involved discerning what does it mean for us to continue as Christians and what does it mean for our churches to press on, to keep going and hopefully to grow and to expand and to spread out. And always and everywhere there were threats and temptations, just as there are today. Luther, of course, would observe these early in his service as a monk and then a professor that there would be uh, protocols and practices that had crept in. That God's word tells you you can find assurance in certain ways by looking to Christ, by remembering the gospel news, by observing the way in which he has changed and brought resurrection life into your midst, by observing the fellowship of the saints. And, and yet they would find other ways, ways that would seem to be more palpable. Go and buy an indulgence. Go and donate some money in honor of someone else. And but just as surely as you find that certificate for that donation, so you can know that, that you are right with God. For what it's worth, I, you all can part for free because apparently I paid the indulgence and paid the, <laughs> the city this evening. Uh, and, and that kind of protocol system was very common. It was exploited. This is a very tangible way that we can make people think that they know that they're in God's good graces by doing something so easy. And Luther would say, you know what? That may seem wise. But as he began his 95 Theses there in October of 1517, the very first thing he has to say is, is rather that repentance isn't simply a matter of buying an indulgence, but repentance involves the entire course of life. And that, that was a redefinition based on God's word. The church was saying repentance involves surrendering a bit of money prayerfully. And, and Luther said, no, God actually wants to change all of you. God actually wants to convert you through and through. God actually wants to remake you, holy to be like Christ. Uh, and so don't find yourself somehow thinking that giving away a few coins has somehow satisfied the mission and calling God has on your life. Um, as they thought about worship, as they thought about the government of the church, as they thought about the way Christians would live in their vocations and their families and political and social matters, as they thought about how they would confess their faith and evangelize, they always returned to this principle that the word of God is, is the way in which we abide. It's what sustains us. And they spoke of this idea of the heavenly session of Jesus Christ, that the same Jesus who inspired the word long, long ago continues to speak powerfully through the word by his Holy Spirit now. 
that Jesus is no less active in 1517 or in 2017 than he was in A.D. 30 to 33. That Jesus is no less interested in doing you good and extending you grace than he was when he hung on that tree or he walked through Galilee or he raised dear Lazarus from the dead. That he is just as committed to raising you and sustaining you and growing you and commissioning you now as he was in dealing with Lazarus and Peter and Mary and Martha. And so the church can not only be born in Jesus' word, but can abide in it because it's living and active. It has a power and an efficacy and effectiveness that is different from any other book, from any other communication. And then last, fourth, the last thing that they went on to say was this idea that the Holy Christian Church, whose only head is Jesus Christ and is born and abides in the word of God, doesn't listen to the voice of a stranger. And there's just two things to catch there. Two things to catch there. The first is the only thing that we really do that's active, the, the word that was used there for being born, you don't, you don't birth yourself. And actually the word that's used for abiding is, is actually a passive word. It's being sustained. The only thing that we actually are actively talked about doing here is listening. We listen. And it's, it's crucial. No, that's, a, that's a very biblical word, isn't it? And Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and the other reformers emphasize so frequently this idea that the posture and the sense of the Christian is the ear. Then, as now, they lived in a culture that that inclined itself in other ways. We're certainly in a culture of the eye. But they emphasize that, that the Bible accents the calling to hear. And so Calvin, for instance, and Zwingli, one of the texts that they would most frequently reference is a very famous one from Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, perhaps the most frequently cited text uh, by any Jewish person and incredibly influential among Christians and, and those in the Protestant world as well. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall therefore love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And it starts off with that very simple command. I mean, you get to really amazing stuff, like you're going to love God with everything you've got. But, but you don't even get to think about that before you begin with simply hearing. The notion of taking in, of, of receiving and it's conveying this posture of dependence and trust and reliance that the holy Christian church, what it means to be a Christian and someone who's holy in Christ is first and foremost to be someone who receives and who doesn't just begin by receiving, but who abides and continues by receiving and is always defined by receiving, by listening to or hearkening to, hearing the voice of her Lord. And so as you read through not just Deuteronomy, but the Psalms and then the prophets, you'll see that perhaps the most common word used to describe trusting in God and returning or cleaving to God for all he's worth is to hear or to hearken. You'll, you'll find it in slightly different uh, intonations and different translations. But those words are, are going back to Deuteronomy 6. 
and this idea that God wants to provide everything. Of course, the catch is in Deuteronomy 6, they'd just come out of Egypt, which was just filled with gods who'd provide this and that. And they're about to go into Canaan, which was just as polytheistic. And so you're about to enter into a marketplace of divinities to whom you could turn. And in the 16th century, Luther and Calvin and the other reformers realized that, that again, they were in a situation where there were lots of spiritual powers. Luther himself would, would invoke this saint or that virgin would call on these angels and rely on that infallible church. And he realized that there was, there was a lot of sharing and supplementing our trust, not just to God. And I think while it's easy to observe sort of the, the Asherah poles of the ancient world and maybe some of the superstition of the 16th century, we tend to rely on other things too and can learn from their word that we don't just live as those who hear or listen, but that our hearing and listening should be such that we never listen to the voice of a stranger. Not as life-giving. We listen to the voice of a stranger with the ears of empathy and love, but we don't listen to them with the ears of faith. We turn only to God. We cleave only to God. We hearken only to God's word because we have nowhere else to go. As Peter would say in one of those first remarkable occurrences of heroism and trust, he uh, confesses this idea that you have the words of life. Where else shall we go? And in this first thesis of Burn, that's what they're confessing, this idea that idolatry is to be avoided because God possesses all goods and blessings. And so the sufficiency of God, that he is perfect, is driving that commitment and that faith. Now, I mentioned earlier, my, my kids know, for instance, that I'm making it up half the time. You've got to decide, can they eat one more cookie or not? Should we not watch that movie? Should we go ahead and go to bed? And I've read a few books, but I'm mostly winging it. And they're aware of that, and they oblige me pretty well from time to time. And that works functionally, you know, for, for getting the little ones here and there and so forth. And we, we experience the same things in other settings too. Not just in the workplace, not just in our churches, not just in politics where we observe people winging it and making it up as they go and, and sort of gaming it and trying to figure out what might be wise and prudent. But let's be honest, we're, we're all kind of a crapshoot. You can't have that running the universe. You can't have that as the basis of your eternal life and blessing. And one of the things that perhaps above all else, Luther and Zwingli and Bootser and Calvin and Cranmer and all the other reformers of the 16th century realized was precisely those words of Moses in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now is a statement because in, in Egypt and in Canaan, the Lord, your gods, cover a lot of different bases. And this one knows that, but nothing else. And this one covers that area, but can't help you anywhere else. And so it's like paying your bills at the end of the month. You've got to keep everybody happy. And my insurer's not going to be impressed that I've written the mortgage check. You've got to operate in every sphere and every facet of life. And that was the religious world of Egypt and Canaan and of the 16th century. 
And when Moses conveys to Israel and when Luther and Calvin and the reformers convey to the church of their day and when we hear today, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Or when we hear that the only head to whom we look is Jesus Christ, we realize we're being told that ultimately, ultimately, behind everything is an all-perfect, all-sufficient God who is absolutely sovereign. That, as James 1 goes on to say, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. Or as Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So just as much as my life is a gift of God and my existence is of his doing, so my being pulled out of a jam, so my being delivered from a disease, so my being called out from a habitual sin, so my being brought up from despondency and despair, so my being sent out with purpose and mission. All of that is, is a gift from God, and so I can turn only to him in faith and with an open ear. That, I think, is why the Reformation had such wide effect, because they had such a big view of God. And that's why they emphasized, I think, the significance of calling the church and every single one of us who names ourselves as a Christian first and foremost as creatures of the Word.